Welcome to Medieval Islamic Medicine. In this episode, we explore the importance of the translation movement in defining a tradition of Islamic medicine in the medieval period. We have to ask the question, when we look at Islamic medicine, um, what texts were they using? How do they position themselves um, in, uh, towards uh, this uh, pre-Islamic uh, tradition, this Hellenistic world which existed earlier, which we've just uh, described in the last, um, last episode of this podcast. Uh, now, if I just take you for a moment to the 12th century, basically what you'll see is that most ideas, the theories, um, is human pathology, is the scalinism of late antiquity. So they, they basically took over a lot of the Greek stuff. And we have to ask, how did this happen? How, how was it possible that they adopted wholesale a lot of the Greek texts? And for this, to under, for us to understand this, basically, we have to look at a massive phenomenon, one of the most important movements within cultural history, and that is the translation movement, which happened in Baghdad, in the, mostly in the 9th century, let's say from 750 to 950, but mostly in the 9th century. What is this translation movement? Now, I say it happened in Baghdad, and that's very important uh, because... Uh, Baghdad is a city which was founded by the Abbasid caliphs. Now, in the 750s, what happens is that the old Umayyad dynasty is ousted and a new dynasty, the Abbasids, comes into power. Now, the Abbasids, as the Umayyads, are of good Arab stock, so the rulers are Arabs. There's no doubt about it. But unlike the Umayyads, whose capital was in Damascus, the Abbasids had very strong support in the east of the Islamic world. And um, they have support from many non-Arabs, so to speak, and, and sometimes also non-Muslims. And this support, so to speak, leads them to want to broaden their power base and want to be more inclusive. Now, in order to mark the new dynasty, the new time, they found a new city. And this city is called the City of Peace. Madinat As-Salam in Arabic. And this city of peace is better known by the name of a small village next to which it was founded, namely Baghdad. And um, so they found the city in, um, um, in the uh, 750s. And then, because of the imperial patronage, the city grows. And by the mid-9th century, we have maybe half a million inhabitants. So for this medieval world, there are very few cities which go beyond 50, 60, 70,000. So Rome was, was an exception to this rule, as was Constantinople, and so was Baghdad. But it was a massive city, and it was a real melting pot of different cultures. I already said the Abbasid wanted to broaden their approach, uh, and Baghdad really became this melting pot. So you had many non-Muslims, this area where they founded it, uh, you know, like in Mesopotamia, which is what is nowadays uh, Iraq, uh, was an area where many Christians, uh, I mean, it, it was Persian at, at, that, at that, many Persian-speaking people lived there, many Jews, many Christians. Uh, in Baghdad itself, people from the four corners of the world came to the city in order to, well, try their luck, you know, 
it was after all the imperial capital this is where you if you wanted to make it you know like if you can make it there you can make it anywhere well i'm maybe exaggerating a bit but uh, this was the happening place so very cosmopolitan many cultures and religions all within the city and uh, the abbasids as i said have this idea of broadening their appeal and they sponsor they and the court and their entourage sponsor translators mostly nestorian christians so mostly christians uh, who are not within the byzantine orthodoxy to translate greek texts so let me just stay with the nestorians and these nestorian christians for a moment say who they are and then afterwards let's look at what what got translated so the most important of these uh, nestorian uh, translators is somebody called Hunayn ibn Ishaq. He dies in maybe 873, maybe 876. So he lives, let's say, from uh, 807 till the 870s. And uh, during his time, he and his entourage um, translate uh, all these uh, Greek texts. So I already said that they are Nestorian Christians, they are Syriac speakers. So they're in the kind of same linguistic and philosophical tradition as uh, Sergius of Rash Aina was, uh, whom we mentioned um, um, in a previous episode. And um, they they have the Syriac language. They, it's, Syriac is an Aramaic language. Uh, it's a Semitic language. Uh, it's the language which, which Jesus probably would have spoken, um, I mean, in a slightly modified form, but it's Aramaic and uh, it's much closer to Arabic than Greek is. But these um, um, Syriac-speaking uh, um, Christians could look back onto a tradition of translation from Greek into Syriac uh, of the Bible, for starters, of the New Testament, uh, but also of other philosophical texts uh, and medical texts, uh, and that helped them, so to speak, to come up uh, with a good uh, translation technique which uh, with a good uh, vocabulary for translation from Greek into Syriac and then from Syriac into Arabic, which was uh, then easier because the two languages are closer to each other. So we have these uh, Syriac-speaking Nestorian Christians. Uh, I mentioned Honain, he had a son, Ishaq ibn Honain, he had a nephew, Hobaish, and he had other people um, working with him who are all or for the most part Syriac-speaking Christians. Now. Before I talk about what got translated, let's just stay with this question. Why did it get translated? In this world, um, people became more and more interested in Greek philosophy, in Greek science, in Greek um, medicine, in Greek mathematics, and so on and so forth. They realized that there's a huge treasure trove of knowledge within this literature, and they want to tap into that resource in order to make it, uh, in order to use it. They also want to include this heritage, this cultural and um, scientific heritage into their own cultures. So the Abbasids, for instance, saw themselves in the line of the Sasanians, this empire which the Muslims conquered. They take over certain court protocol from them. They have supports in the East, as I already said. And what do they say? They say that basically what happened is that when Alexander the Great in uh, the 320s BC, conquered large parts of Persia, he actually stole Persian wisdom 
and had it translated into Greek and they kind of claim that a lot of Greek medical and scientific law is Persian law only that the, the Persian text no longer existed. So when they are translating these Greek texts, when they tap into that tradition, they are just kind of getting back their own tradition. So they make this scientific uh, knowledge, this scientific tradition, their own. This is like an important kind of uh, ideological justification for the translation movement. So this is kind of covers the why. Why also like their sponsors. So there's a lot of money being spent on, on texts being translated. The courts and the entourage of the court pay money for translations into Arabic, but also certain kind of high-flying, well-off, uh, Syriac-speaking um, Christians pay good money to have text translated from Greek uh, into Syriac. And that is often a first, uh, first step. And all this happens in 9th century Baghdad. Now let's turn to the question of what got translated. Basically, everything available in late antique Alexandria, everything which was core curriculum, which people studied and read in late antique Alexandria, got translated into Arabic. So we are talking about most of Aristotle, like the great Greek philosopher of the 4th century BC. We are talking about a lot of Hippocrates, like the great uh, father of medicine who lived roughly in the 5th century BC. We are talking about huge amounts of Galen, the 2nd century medical author who was so crucial for the development of medicine in late antiquity and also with it. Uh, in the European world and ever since. We, we're talking about Galenism and uh, all these Galenic texts getting translated more or less wholesale on a massive, on a massive, massive, massive scale. So this is, the, those are the medical texts, those are the philosophical texts. We have engineering, we have mathematics, Euclid for instance. We have, um, well, just just about everything scientific and technical. There are just two exceptions to this general trend of translating everything. And one is um, Greek poetry. And the other exception is, to a certain extent, is Greek classical historiography. So people have speculated why it is that um, the Arabs did not translate, let's say, you know, Homer, or why they didn't translate, you know, Menando, and so on and so forth. Well, they did to, little, to a certain extent. There are certain you know, like a monostichoi or, you know, sententiae, sentences by, um, by Menander, something like, whom the god love dies young, on garhoi theophilus in apotheneske neos, like these kind of uh, little pithy, um, you know, sayings, they did do actually get translated into Arabic, but most of the, and Homer even, some of Homer, verses of Homer exist, uh, sometimes they are, actually like when you look clo more closely it's actually Menander again so some of this stuff gets translated but mostly it doesn't get translated and the reasons probably have to do more with uh, the uh, fads and fashions in late antique uh, Alexandria than some sort of innate Philistinism as some have claimed on the parts of the Arabs uh, in 9th century Baghdad so basically we have like all the scientific law which gets uh, translated and let me just conclude by uh, coming to one last point if I may and this is the following. Through this translation movement, the Arabic scientific 
and medical and philosophical vocabulary is created. So we have like a specialized, we have specialized texts here and by virtue of these texts getting translated into Arabic, the translators create a medical terminology, they create a philosophical terminology, they create a scientific and mathematical terminology. And this means then that by the by the end of the ninth century, you can write on any subject in Arabic in a way that this would not have been conceivable, let's say, in pre-Islamic or in early Islamic times. So basically, all of a sudden, you have the tools in order to discuss more or less anything and most importantly also medical uh, subjects and the Arabs when they translate these things kind of adopt this tradition they adapt it as we will find out later and they make it their own they give this tradition so to speak not only permanent right of abode but they make it theirs by claiming it as their own heritage but when we look at, when we ask how got text translated or on a more specific linguistic level, how good were these translations? How did they do it? Is it just transliteration or is it transformation? Do they add their own ideas? When we ask these questions, obviously we can't just say this happened for the whole period. There's a certain development. In the earlier days, we often find what is called transliteration. So certain Greek words which are difficult just get transliterated. So you write the Greek word in Arabic letters and sometimes, for instance, for a condition such as phrenitis, phrenitis in Greek, uh, what we would nowadays maybe call meningitis or something like this, uh, uh, this is difficult because in the Arabic alphabet you have a lot of letters which are only distinguished by kind of a dot above or a dot below and um, phrenitis in Arabic, the first letter, this, which would be F, is written like it's kind of a little circle which has one dot above and if you put two dots above it actually becomes not Faranitis but Karanitis and in certain dictionaries, later medieval dictionaries, we find this term Phrenitis under Karanitis with Kaf not with Fa. So you see this transliteration happens but it is also dangerous because uh, the, the, it's a foreign word and the, uh, if you don't know Greek or even if you know Greek um, it's kind of sometimes difficult to make out uh, what happens with these uh, kind of foreign words uh, in, in the manuscript. So transliteration does take place, but uh, it, it gets less and less and less. Another technique which was used is the so-called calque, or a loan translation. So you take a Greek word so, such as um, alopecia, alopecia, some sort of trichological disorder, you lose hair, and this literally means alopex means fox and uh, alopecia is so to speak the fox disease you could translate it i mean the greek word you could translate it like this into english and this is just what i've done just now i say the fox disease this is exactly what the arabs so they call it the athalab so the disease of the fox and uh, they kind of created a calc but it's much better they created this loan translation but it's much better because uh, kind of the reader of arabic understands it it won't because it's not transliterated it will kind of people understand it and can use it and this uh, and there are many other examples of of this kind of technique and a third so to speak strategy to create a terminology is the real translation you take one greek word such as uh, spasmos spasm 
and you use another Arab word such, such as tasannuj uh, in order to render it. And so um, the, the Greek word means something and then Arabic word means something very similar and you just, you know, like kind of translate it like this and uh, so this would be the, the real translation. So these are, we have these three things and the transliteration becomes, you know, like as we go on, as we come to the heyday, to Hanayn ibn Ishaq, we see that this um, transliteration kind of is faded out a bit. I mean, it does exist for drug names and it's a bit of a compli complicated subject because often then people go wrong and they write big books and trying to identify drugs. But uh, um, so to speak, this, uh, this gets less and less. And uh, what you have on the level of the sentence is that um, Honain was a complete master of the Arab language as he was a master of the Greek and the Syriac language. So he knew Arabic perfectly well and uh, his strategy was not to translate word by word or even try to keep the Greek word order. No, he tried to convey the meaning of each uh, phrase, of each paragraph, of each sentence as it was. And he was, for me, he is a genius because very often when you look at his translations, I mean, he operates in 9th century Baghdad. I mean, he doesn't have any electronic resources. He doesn't have 2,000 years of Greek scholarship on his shelf as we do nowadays. But he comes up often with translations which are better than some of the stuff which my modern colleagues, I don't want to say this too loudly, actually produce. So I don't, won't name names, but at times his medieval Arabic renderings are better, show a greater understanding of the issues involved than do those modern, some of our modern English or um, French or German translations. Let me just add one last thing, because obviously translation is also transformation. And there are certain ideas which, with which a Muslim or a monotheistic audience would be uncomfortable. For instance, the Greek pantheon. You know, like there's Zeus and then there are Athena and other gods, Hermes, and so they all run around. And some of them play a certain role in Greek medical texts. They are mentioned, for instance, in the in the oath, the Hippocratic oath at the beginning. You say, uh, "I swear by Apollo and a number of other gods," uh, and so we sometimes see that these Greek gods are translated by the word for God in Arabic, Allah. So we have sometimes certain cultural transformations in our translations. That's certainly true. There is, for instance, one case uh, in. Uh, an anatomical um, treatise by Galen where Honain or whoever translated the Arabic text chose to replace the phrase exposed children with aborted fetuses. Now in, in, in Islam you have a strong injunction against exposing children. I mean some people thought that might have been a pre-Islamic uh, custom and we have some surahs which have been interpreted as injunctions against exposing children. And so there you, the, the phrase, the Greek phrase exposed children is changed to aborted fetuses in order to make, uh, maybe, we can only speculate, but maybe in order to make the text less harsh. So at certain times we find these little cultural modifications, I mean not that many, but we find them at, at times. In our next episode, Peter discusses the medical theory that underpinned the Islamic tradition and how this was actually reflected in medical practice. Peter's book, Medieval Islamic Medicine, written with Emily Savage-Smith, is now available. <laughs>